welcome to History Uncensored. As always, I'm your host, Seth Michaels. Thank you so much for believing in me. I knew this day would come that I would eventually finish another episode. I know it's been a while. Fuck me, am I right? Fill you guys in a little bit about what's going on in my life because I feel like it has been a while. I started school again, so a lot of my time and effort has been put into that and taking care of my kids. My kids are four and one, and they take up so much of my time as they should. Uh, I, I find it really hard to get away from them when they're home. So yeah, COVID hit. I've been working in a pharmacy for about 40 hours a week. On the plus side, I'm having hip surgery. So that means I should be able to produce episodes at a faster rate. Um, I still hopefully want to fill in with those like short episodes. Tell me if you guys like those email me or do whatever. Um, but I missed you guys. My void the the people that I talk to and I'm having trouble. I'm always having trouble. But yeah, hip surgery, kids, school, work, COVID means I've been a busy man. No time for recording. So I'm sorry. You know, and I know I'm not living up to my end of the bargain as a podcaster, but I am as a father, a husband, and a person. I love you all, and here's the next episode. Theodora. Before me, emperors tremble. Let's take it back to episode one for a moment, though. As I'm sure you all remember, I kind of harped on it, right? Theodora grew up as, we'll say, an entertainer. Entertainer. It's what her father did, kind of. Her father wasn't a prostitute. Her father was a bear tamer um, or an animal handler for the Greens in Constantinople. She fucked her way to power and fell into the arms of a man named Hecabolus. Uh, she became pregnant and she was thusly banished by him because she probably brought to him like, hey, let's raise this child together. He's like, fuck that. So coming back to Constantinople, long winding path she could only really count on her youth and some of her wily possessions at the time when she came back she's a total outcast she didn't have nearby family or compatriots and this is when a time when patronage was based on familiar regional roots and it was all powerful so she came back to this world in which she used to live in and you know then she had her sister and she had you know, she was adopted by the Blues on her way back, and she kind of became an agent. She's working her way toward finally regaining a position of power. And throughout this time, even through having a child, as Theodora grows older, she becomes fuck-all beautiful. She's described as Helen of the East. Helen launched 10,000 Greek warships. I don't think Theodore had that type of, you know, beautification, you know, beauty influence, but... Throughout all of this, throughout coming back and, and making a name for herself and becoming an agent, Theodora came to Justinian's notice. Who knows? Maybe she was really good as an agent for the Blues. Maybe she was really smart. Maybe she just, you know, knew how to do something. Was there a certain spark of intelligence or wit in her reports? I have no fucking idea. Nobody does. But we do know that Justin Justinian fell very rapidly head over heels in love with her. Our ability to reconstruct what happened is facilitated marginally by Procopius, as you remember earlier, noted historical asshole. Yeah, that guy. Kind of goes on to say, you know, Justinian and Theodora are basically devils. Whatever. He says that 
they married only after Justinian in 521 or 522, somewhere around there, forced Justin after the death of Justin's then wife, Euphemia, uh, who Procopius says detested Theodora, not surprised, to make a new law legalizing marriages between former actresses and men of high status. I want to talk about Euphemia just for a moment. She was an empress around the time Theodora returned, right? She's coming back to Constantinople, and Euphemia would have been Empress uh, Justin's, you know, wife. Pretty interesting about Euphemia. She was formerly known as Lupicina, a slave, and who eventually became the concubine of Justin. But sometime just before he held the temper of emperor, he freed Lucipinia and gave her the rights of a freedborn. Remember, Rome, Byzantine, Constantinople, you can make slaves free. She was no longer a slave, and she was adopted into high society. She took the name Euphemia. Because it, I don't know. I think Lupicinia sounds cooler, but Euphemia became her empress name. And during Justin's rise to power, she stood strong by his side and became one of the most powerful women in the world. Perhaps we'll do an episode on her later. Who knows? I'm far too busy to plan super far ahead. The real reason I, I wanted to bring up Euphemia is she fucking hated Theodora. At least that's what said, right? Procopius said she fucking hated Theodora. Probably in those exact words. She didn't want Justinian to get married to her. I couldn't find the exact reasons why, but I might speculate. I mean, that's what history is for, right? Trying to understand the, the motives behind the people. Uh, speculating about the evidence and drawing conclusions. So here I go. Theodora was an actress and wildly beautiful, incredibly successful, and... Uh, Euphemia, though older and in a position of power, saw a usurper, someone that could take the glamour from her story, someone she could hate until her death, 523. Euphemia was dead set against changing the laws about marriage. But now, she was just dead. All of this brings up to this point, this, this marriage law that I really want to talk about. Justin addressed the law right around 521 to 522 the text of this law is in some places very extraordinarily person specific it describes someone who sounds very much like theodore obviously not mentioned by name but it's a fact that allows us to use allows us a useful insight into theodore's position at the time and a rare glimpse of the forces that drove her. Indeed, this law may be one of the most important pieces of evidence we ever attempting to solve the mystery of who the real Theodora was. The marriage law opens with a long preamble, which, right, don't laws open with long preambles, in which the emperor states that it is appropriate to imperial beneficence to take account of the welfare of the empire's people and that, in his view, the errors of women through which they may elect the unworthy and turn from honor through the weakness of their sex may be corrected through proper moderation and they should in no way be deprived of the hope of a better condition. Basically, women are horrible human beings and they should be allowed to be better, but only by the guidance of powerful men. That's right. Wait, that doesn't sound right. Well, it was right then. No, not right, not right, right. You know what I'm saying. Forgive me for that moment. It Indeed, at this point, it behooves an emperor to imitate the beneficence of God who every day forgives mortals their sins. Right? And is the ruler of Constantinople, the, the Byzantine emperor, 
Empire, Justin would have been as close to God as you can pretty much become for a mortal. Really try and uh, play on Justin's exceptional mercy. The first clause states that it would be unfair if slaves could be freed and granted by imperial dispensation the status of freeborn persons, while women who joined themselves to the entertainments of the stage and or other men, and then spurning their evil condition, moved to a better opinion and fled the dishonorable profession, would have no hope of imperial beneficence, which might place them back into the state in which, if there had been no error, they would have been able to stay. Basically, women who left their evil and dishonorable choice of prostitution and state, well, not prostitution, I'll get to that later. Women who left the stage behind, because that was... Ugh, you don't want to be an actor. Allowed them to embrace a better life. Give it, that gives themselves a more of a respectable countenance. Be able to petition the emperor for the right of legitimate marriage. Those who married actresses should not fear that their marriages would be voided by the rulings of earlier laws and that no disreputable title would cling to former actresses. They would have the same status as women who had never sinned. Hmm. All of this is leading somewhere, isn't it? The second clause states that children born after the marriage of a man to a former actress would be legitimate and have the same rights as any children of her husband by a prior marriage. The third envisages the situation in which women who have sex sexfully, successfully petitioned for the right to marry have elected to postpone that marriage even though unmarried at this point they would still be considered women of good rep. You know, it wouldn't necessarily happen in Theodora's case, but it might have been plausible at the time. Clause 4 reinforces the third, saying that the situation of women now permitted to marry will be similar to that of women who have obtained a position of dignity, yada yada yada, even if they did not request it by virtue of which position every other stain through which women are prohibited from marrying certain men will be wiped clean from their dignity. Clause 5 lays down that girls born after their mothers renounced the stage should not be seen to be subjected to the laws that prohibit the daughter of a former actress from marrying certain men. Imagine a world where all of these rules existed where actresses, daughters or children of actresses or actors would not be able to enter into a lawful marriage just because they were entertaining people. Not only were they entertaining, you know, lowborn people, they were entertaining people from all castes of life. So these people who were literally using them and enjoying what they did dis them to the point where they wouldn't allow somebody to enter into a lawful marriage. And this law, albeit more specifically targeted toward Theodora, but still in its way is a very good point. Like it's a decent point in the history of women, at least in the Roman Byzantine Emperor, that allows them to move past this caste that they were put in. It... All right. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Maybe could whoever drafted this law had Theodora in mind? Hmm, Clause 3 describes exactly the situation, and she could have found herself in, for instance, the Patriarch of Constantinople had objected to a marriage between someone associated with the anti-Chalcedonian community and a potential heir to the throne. Then Clause 4 would eliminate any obstacles to the marriage arising from Theodore's earliest status as Hecubolus's concubine. Provision that a daughter, it is interesting the lot spec the, this law specifies daughter here rather than child, 
born while a woman was performing on the stage could likewise expect to petition successfully for the right to marry. Looks very much like a dispensation designed for Theodora's own daughter, right? Because Theodora's daughter would have been conceived right around the same time that she was both on the stage as well as becoming Hecabolus's concubine. The marriage law and the tale of the Amadean embassy demonstrate not only that Justinian was passionately in love with Theodora, which I completely believe um, by the time that he was granted his consulship, but also that their relationship blossomed very quickly. The text of the marriage law suggests that Theodora remained profoundly concerned with her daughter's welfare. She may have also been looking out for her sister, Komito who would marry Cytus, Justinian's bodyguard and eventual general, a young man said to be dashing as well as very able. Well, it can't be proved that the language of redemption in the marriage law, the stress on the bad choices a woman may make, cannot fail to intrigue us. The terms the law is couched in make the woman the active party in determining her future, as it should be. Was this the way Theodora saw herself? Kind of as her own agent for change? and. I would think absolutely. As we look past at, you know, what I've talked about so far, she has taken initiative. She has grabbed the consul, counselors right by the balls and forced her way in there. That sounded a lot, awful lot like testicular torsion. Never mind. There is more to this law that I've kind of been talking about that kind of meets the eye. I'm not sure if when we really take a look at it, the ruling differs in a significant and substantive detail from that about an ordinary penitent actress. The later obtains an imperial grant whereupon the blemish of the stage is wiped out. In the case of a patrician, her rank, the law declares, wipes out not only the blemish of the stage, but also any other blemish whatsoever, which might impede a high union. Let's think about that for a moment. Theodora hopefully is entering into this this world as a patrician, right? Attaining the the rank of patrician. Because of that, all of her previous sins are wiped out, not just that of the stage. That's really what that is saying. And what's important about that is Theodora, as I've said, was widely reputed to have been a prostitute. And thus, quite apart from her theatrical past, to belong to a category not to be taken in marriage by any freeborn man, let alone a senator. Neither she, nor Justinian, nor Justin would admit this for one moment. On the contrary, they were greatly concerned to mark off her venial offense, the theater from prostitution which, in this world, remained in, in principle unredeemable. Yeah. Can't just be going around having sex with a bunch of people and being expected to be picked up. Or can you? The Theodora, who emerges on the public stage of Byzantium, does so as a deeply devout and determined woman. And what I mean by public stage, I mean like when she emerges as this lover of Justinian, who kind of is working her way up to become a patrician herself. She's deeply devout, determined, and very loyal to her friends. She was both a patrician and a former actress, and had lived life at the sharp end. Ooh. She wouldn't walk away from the person she had she had been, even as she approached the pinnacle of power. Theodora was promoted to a high position at court. She actually became a patrician around 523. Therefore, she held the same rank as Justinian. Kind of, right? I mean, yeah. Whoever expected to be 
I mean, everybody expected at this point to become the next emperor after Justin. The couple lived together openly in the palace of Ormesadis. During ceremonies in churches and basilicas, Theodora shone more brilliantly than the candles in the women's gallery. The Christian temples were the new stage for displaying her beauty. The stages of her past, forgotten. The learned statesmen used these occasions to mount fresh challenges to old conventions. Theodora is becoming a lady. The mistress of riches, mansions, lands, handmaids, eunuchs. Who knows? She's becoming very wealthy very quickly. And she took a splendid retinue along when she visited almshouses or places of worship to display her Christian sharing of suffering. And all the while, other people tended to the constant growth of her assets to ensure her dignity and well-being and that of her family. Oh, to be a patrician in the Byzantine Empire. Especially to be a patrician who was so closely tied to Justinian. So at this point, Justinian and Theodora have become married and they are living in the palace and having lots of sex, I would imagine. Well, actually, probably not that last one. Justinian liked to contemplate life. Eventually, she becomes empress. Empress at last. We can imagine the scene on the appointed day. Officials and guardsmen gather in the Delphex. Those of patrician rank are admitted to the triclinium of the 19 couches where Justin is seated with Justinian. When all is ready, Constantinople's patriarch joins the patricians in escorting the two principals from the triclinium to the tribunal or platform in the Delphex, where the insignia of office are laid out on an altar. Here, after a brief prayer, grooms come forward to dress the new Caesar in his imperial garb, and the crowd acclaim him with the words, Most fortunate of all, followed by the chant of many years for the emperors Justin and Justinian, many years for the great emperors, divinely appointed emperors. And as a reminder, very close to almost think of it like pharaohs in ancient Egypt without all of the direct ascendancy things. And as we get back to the, the coronation, as we're remembering this, this beautiful happening and all the marble and the the wide arches and probably flowers and opulent riches. There's Theodora standing with the patricians. We imagine her emotions as she watches her husband don his fine new regalia as the praises ring out around her. She knows that she will be empress, the next Augusta, when the time comes, that is, as long as nothing untoward happens. The son of a peasant and the daughter of a bear keeper. They are only too aware how incongruous a couple they must seem to the assembled patricians. They have to give people time to get used to the idea. Now rise Augusta Theodora, more than a lady, more than a patrician. This is something that had been by no means inevitable. In the two centuries since the founding of the Empire of Constantinople, of the Byzantine Empire, from 324 to 527, there had been 26 emperors and a total of 30 wives. Only nine of these wives had been made Augustae, and not one of them from the very start like Theodora. Think about how in love, in a world so steeped in tradition, Theodora must have been to Justinian to have accomplished something like the very first Augusta. How much Justinian must have taken her consulship for what it was. Why had fate been so kind to her? I, I mean, has a fate, I guess, has been kind to her, but... You know, it's you have to get kind of past the 
moral scruples of the situation. But Theodora and Justinian, at this point, continue to live in the Palace of Hormisatis. And it appears to be at this point that they begin, as befits imperial personages, to plan the new church of Saints Sergius and Bacchus. Right after they're married, 523, they start planning this church, and it'll be finished eventually in 527. And this church survives today and is known as the Little Hagia Sophia Mosque. You can go visit it. That's pretty cool. Another message conveyed by the building of the church of Sergius and Bacchus was that the imperial couples had no intention of being pushed around by those who thought they were the wrong people to be moving into the Grant Palace. Fuck no. The inscription's message is this. While other rulers have honored people who led useless lives, Justinian, who fosters piety, dedicates this church to Saint Sergius, who is persuaded by neither fire nor sword nor unjust trial to abandon his faith, his death permitting him to enter into heaven. God crowned Theodora, whose mind shines with piety. That, that's what it says. God crowned Theodora, whose mind shines with piety. That's what Justinian's like. That's what I want to everybody to see which is pretty crazy like that's i mean yeah i mean that's quite a romantic gesture maybe you know justinian was really just a romantic all along and at this this is the same point as they were married and they were getting on with their stuff and that management of you know their duties and everything that they want to accomplish is really starting to take hold Unfortunately, guys, I know you've probably made it this far, but this is the most boring of the three episodes. There will be another Theodora episode after this. There's just so much to cover. But so we're going to go through this next bit here. Um, but before we do, I want to take a break because my voice is literally dying. Um, so take a moment and think about other women of history that you want me to talk about. And uh, reach out to me at my email, historyu.pod at gmail.com, historyu.pod at gmail.com, or Twitter at Seth4Nerds, and I'll be right back. Hey everyone, I'm Kelly. And I'm Emily, and we're from Whining About History. Ever notice how women seem to be missed, forgotten, or maybe even purposely left out of history books? We did. So we decided to take the his out of history and make it herstory. Each episode, we discuss the lives and general awesomeness of these historical wonder women, all while having a glass of wine. Or maybe a bottle. Come join us on all of your favorite podcast platforms at WAHpod on Instagram, WAH underscore pod on Twitter, and at Whining About Herstory dot com remember that's no h or e in whining see you, see you soon. soon cheers wow i haven't done this in a while and it is showing all right where was i oh yeah uh boring episode but theodora and her fucking lover justinian yeah those people really started to manage the expectations around their imperial office right so they they really wanted to get things moving in the palace which is where everything began right all the laws and stuff is pretty much a ritual unto itself these rituals govern the lives of those who lived in the palace for several years now theodora would have been learning how to deal with all sorts of people ranging from imperial bureaucrats to courtiers 
and special advisors to the people that she has go about her errands to the people that she's having manage her very substantial accounts. The change in her status as soon as she became Justinian's companion would have affected her life in a bunch of different ways from the clothes that she wore, you know, lots of silk and jewelry to even her food and her sex life, which her sex life probably wasn't nearly as extravagant or probably less chance of disease. But let's just say her life changed. It went from less glamorous to glamorous to holy shit. She's the fucking Augusta of the Empire. Um, while I was doing research for this episode is at this point that I found out that patricians around this time bathed four times per month. Sometimes more if you were in a real glamorous position, which is crazy. Uh, I mean, we like to think that in, in modern times, right? Lots of us shower every day, every other day. But four times a month is a significant amount, right? That's enough to, to keep you um, pretty healthy and pretty hygienic. So that's interesting. Just I didn't find out. Maybe somebody can do the research and tell me how many times did a, a peasant or, the, you know, the normal person in around this time bathe. I'm just curious because like this is like the start of the Dark Ages, you know, like this is this is when shit is going down. This is where the first five years, you know, we're going to talk about the first five years of their, you know, reign and some of the themes that dominated, you know, these first years, so on and so forth, and kind of some things that were happening. Here we go. The broader themes that dominated the first five years of her and Justinian's reign were an ongoing effort to establish the legitimacy of their regime, a frenetic administrative change, plus a pronounced desire to put the religious quarrels of the immediate past behind them and to secure a stable relationship with God. That last part wasn't unrelated to the struggle for legitimacy for a series of natural disasters that struck the Eastern Mediterranean from 526 onward. The date of the destructive earthquake of at Antioch was interpreted as the visible manifestation of God's anger. Damn, he is pissed. Theodore and Justinian are in power. It's because of things like that, there weren't convincing advertisements for the validity of Justinian's claim that he was God's agent on Earth. The issue was all the more serious because according to the author of contemporary work of political theory, the emperor had been created in imitation of God, a view that was foundational to Justinian's view of imperial power. Justinian did not see himself as answering to the people who in legal texts of the period wore for the first time referred to as subjects. He saw the people both collectively and individually as potential beneficiaries of his divine benevolence. Damn. That's some narcissistic shit. Just as a great and successful artist is rarely an isolated genius, any great political figure owes much of his fortune to a circle of collaborators. Early on, Justinian realized that he could rely on Theodora's advice and her life experience. I think specifically her life experience and probably her connection to the Blues who had a finger on the people because the emperors kind of understand what it was, you know, to live through that. Justinian, though the son of a peasant, kind of rose through different avenues in his life. And in turn, Theodora understood that within the palace, the courtiers who revolved around her had to be shaped to suit her needs. Her needs were clear. Guarantee power for Justinian, and therefore herself, while Justinian tended towards his ideas of expansionism. Justinian wanted to expand the empire, wanted to take back Rome eventually, and I'll probably get to that 
at some point. Theodore's realism was a defense mechanism for her, right? She was grounded in realism. She knew that she was pretty much in constant danger and fighting for legitimacy. Among those who were most loyal to Theodora, among those, you know, were also those who knew her well. We could start with her family. Um, we don't really have any information about her younger sister, but the Empress undoubtedly turned to her older sister, Komido, who we talked about in the previous episode, a little bit here, who had been her teacher uh, on stage. We already noted that in 528, Komido had married Saitis, a capable war warrior and eventual general second to none. So we see that the Empress's urban and show business family immediately started working to strengthen one another and build a new ruling elite bound closely to the throne in Justinian. Years later, a similar arrangement would bind Komido's daughter, Sophie, Sophia, in marriage to Justinian, son of which, one of Justinian's sisters. And that's kind of what you see throughout Theodora's reign is, you know, she's combining the, her past with her present and really treating the people around her as fair and as equally as she possibly could for the most part. But some of Theodora's official activities, now that she has this base of, of people that she can trust, these, these base, this base of loyal followers, some of the activities that fell within these first few years were set by earlier empresses, right? So she's following by example, such as giving expensive gifts to cities or communicating in her own right with foreign dignitaries. These are all actions that would reflect her own life experiences and interests, things that she wanted to accomplish, but nonetheless took a page from previous empresses. In other words, something she would do simply because she was who she was, and as empress, it was possible for her to do them. Basically, she was rich and powerful and did whatever the fuck she wanted. Some believe that her first task was to murder Amalsunthina, queen of the Goths in Italy, so Justinian would not marry her instead of Theodora. That's probably untrue, but nonetheless reveals what people thought Theodora capable of. Likelier deeds and better attested are to do with the Empress's role vis-a-vis -vis their church and within the palace, where she would promote men she liked, right? Building that base from time to time and persuade her husband to get rid of those she didn't like. Again, building that base of loyal people around her. Procopius alleges that Theodora could act pretty much as she liked in order to dispose of the people she found threatening, which implies that she had a large and loyal staff, quite likely running to almost a thousand people. As one who could and did provide significant endowments for institutions she patronized, she likely had discretion as to how she would spend her money, and she was expected to fun function as a public face of the imperial regime. Why not? She was very beautiful. I mean, I didn't know her personally, but I imagine she was. Justinian is actually one of my previous lives. True story. Uh, the first five years stand apart from the rest of Theodora's reign because of the necessary concentration on internal affairs, shoring things up at home. Because eventually something happens, the Nika revolt, and that threatened to topple her husband's regime in 532, January 532. And this would set in motion some major changes both in Constantinople, whose political center would have, would have to be rebuilt, and across the empire. And before the end of that year, Justinian would begin his attempt at retaking their Western Empire. It's a huge task that would dominate much of the rest of his reign. The end of the Nika Revolt would establish once and for all that he and Theodora no longer felt the need to justify their position. There could be no doubt when that moment came that they were on the throne to stay. But be before we get to the Nika Revolt, and that's probably how I'll end the this episode, 
before we get there, let's talk about the little, a little bit of prehistory to that. The greatest protection of the state rests on two things, arms and law. And ensuring its own power through these two things, the fortunate race of the Romans have been placed above all nations and have been made to rule them in all and past times as well as within the current time of Justinian. And especially at this point with the assistance of God Almighty. It will in the future. Arms and laws both have always flourished with the assistance of each other. Just as military affairs are protected by laws, so are laws guarded by the protection of arms. Even now, right? Goodness gracious, talk about a shit show lately. By the way, if you guys don't know my opinions on BLM and um, Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, just based on your my previous history episodes, you, you probably shouldn't be listening. But yeah, you, you, I'm sure you guys can infirm my current stance. Where was I? For just as military affairs are protected by law, so are laws guarded by the protection of arms as we see currently. Although friends and foes alike would tend to present Theodora as a creature of faction, her actions in the year 528 suggest that she was trying to rise above factionalism. The gifts she gave to the city that had seen her life change beyond recognition and those she had given to leaders who did not share her confessional outlook suggest that what she wanted to convey was that, like Justinian, she was there to be a ruler for all Romans, no matter what their religious convictions. And with a decree banning factional violence, both empress and emperor were asking their subjects to turn away from the divisions of the past towards a new future. Two measures against heretics and dealing with religious deviance show us quite a different aspect of imperial government from top-down center-periphery model we have seen so far within the government. Both seem to have sprung from isolated cases that caused Justinian to take a more wide-ranging action. The first dealt with men engaging in same-sex relations, the other with pagans in the context of ongoing natural disasters or signs of the wrath of God. In 528, this was exemplified by a massive earthquake at Soloi Pompeipolis. It's now the southern Turkish province of Mersin. It's easier to look up if you want to know where that is but this earthquake was said to have swallowed up half the city son of a bitch as well as the earthquake that hit antioch in the same year lots of earthquakes lots of death and destruction angry gods all sorts of things it's events like this the report of a city suddenly half submerged beneath the earth that may have been rhetorical exaggeration, but it reflects the sort of thing people believe possible when the Almighty was in a bad, pissed-off, motherfucking mood. Ain't take no shit from nobody. Allusions to a link between that what was seen as sexual deviance and God's anger refer to incidents that took place in 529 involving two bishops. That's the homosexual one that I was talking about before. The action against men engaging in these relations had some background in earlier Roman laws banning what was seen as openly transgressive sexual conduct. In this case, two bishops, one from Rhodes, the other from Thrace, were brought to Constantinople from their respective seas and tried before the city prefect who tortured one of them, then sent him into exile. Sounds like a love story. Does somebody want to write that love story for me? The bishop from race and a bishop from Rhodes meet and then you know it it ends in one of them being exiled what a great story um 
Oh, wait. Uh, the Yeah, so one of them was exiled, um, tortured, but the other one was castrated and then displayed in a litter. Maybe not a great love story. Justinian then ordered a more comprehensive roundup of people engaging in ass-fucking. John Malalas, the author of A Contemporary Chronicle and our most important source for these carryings-on, says that great fear fell upon those who were afflicted with lust towards men. You know, men afflicted with lust towards men. The penalties for conviction on charges of religious deviance included public humiliation, flogging, and as we just saw, castration, sometimes inflicted with such brutality that the victims died. But what a time to be alive when you could just be like out strolling the street and some dude in a litter who is bleeding from his now castrated genitalia is just like shown to the people like, here, look at this man without genitalia. Don't fuck dudes. Crazy. Procripius alleges that Theodora took advantage of this law as, you know, during this early part of their reign to deal with a man named Bassanius. Uh, Described as a wealthy supporter of the Greens, right? Theodora, yeah, as we remember, blue. And this dude was slandering her. According to Procopius, she had dragged him out of a church and had him tried. In his case, as in that of the Bishop of Rhodes, he was tortured during the trial and castrated upon conviction. He just dragged him out of there and she's like, we're going to set up this trial right now, motherfuckers. He's guilty. Cut off his ding-dong. Yeah. So that's a nice little story about her. Don't slander the Empress, the Auguste. In other things that she created laws around, right? Other options, other parts of her early regime that she eventually worked toward the betterment of the people. And acting in her own right, but also in the interest of ill-treated children. At this point, it was Theodora who brought about the passage of a law dealing with child prostitution, which was a thing. A prime example of the care for the downtrodden advertised in the inscription on the church of Sergius and Bacchus. The problem she wished to solve in this instance was that pimps were routinely offering impoverished parents money for their children. They would promise no evil would come to them. Like, do the parents just... I mean, the parents obviously might not know that they're pimps. But imagine, like, you're just chilling at home and somebody who's looks kind of wealthy, walks up to your door and is like, I'll pay you for your kids. Don't worry. Nothing bad is going to come to them. Wink. And then, once free of the parents, they would force that child into prostitution. Which, as a reminder, there was no way you could ever come back from it. In these times. Wonderful. Theodora ordered the arrest of all of these pimps, though, along with their victims. When they came before her, we should envisage her in the Augustaeus. You know, she ordered the pimps to declare under oath how much they had paid the parents. When they replied that they paid a few gold pieces each, Theodora gave each one five gold per girl. Then ordered the girls released. The pimps were forbidden to go back into business, while the girls were given fresh clothing and one silver coin and sent home. She freed those kids from prostitution, paid the pimps so there wasn't, you know, a great pimp uprising of like 529 or something like that. And the fact that she would take a very different approach to the issue of prostitution rather than that of sexual deviance 
might suggest she had discovered that a one-time act of benevolence on her part in respect of a deeply rooted social ill made her made for better theater than policy. The fact that she was treating child prostitution as a social issue rather than a moral one presents an interesting contrast to the earlier situation involving the two priests. Or not necessarily the two priests, but the one that she pulled out of church and castrated. This is also one of a number of signs that around this time that her concern for the weak was evolving into actual policy statements. She was actually trying to make a difference in the world that she lived in, not just being rich and powerful. In a law st in 531 stating that the slave concubine of a man who had died could not be reduced to slavery by his heirs, but rather unless her partner had specified her continued slavery in his will, she and her children would be free. Would appear to invince a concern to protect otherwise powerless women. Laws of this sort reinforce the impression that she was counting Trebonian among her palace allies. Trebonian was her court lawyer dude. It was around this time Theodora really wanted to make babies with Justinian. They just couldn't do it. The story goes, after some vexation at the fact and a refusal to be seen as a failure in public eye, she went to a visiting monk. And as she was visiting the monk, she greeted him warmly and asked, Pray for me, Father, that God grant me fruit of the womb. Sabas the monk responded, God, the master of all, will guard your empire. What the fuck? Not what she was asking. She repeated her inquiry. Pray, Father, that God will give me a child. He assured her that the God of glory would maintain the empire in piety and victory. Um, that didn't answer the question, you fuck. Who says that anyway to the question of whether or not she should be pregnant? It's all prophecy-like and mysterious. Yeah, the prophecy was true. No more kids. War and misfortune during the period from April 27 to December 31 formed the backdrop to the catastrophe that would occur in the first half of January 532. This catastrophe that began with relatively minor riots in the Hippodrome was one of two events in the next decade where Theodora's personal intervention is well attested as having changed the course of history as well as her husband's reign, saving him from deposition. To preserve her position, she was willing to countenance the extraordinary, brutal repression of the very people whose nurturance she had taken upon herself. Pretty fucking badass. And this is where i'm going to end this episode um whoa what a journey through her first five years you know we found out theodore worked for the people she worked against the people kind of really a true story of who she was she wanted to get into power so badly that they were willing to change the laws to do it she was in justinian's ear she helped him write policy, she helped him change the course of history from then on. A very important woman in the in the history of women. It's kind of why I'm spending a, a little bit of time with her, maybe more than I, I might, I, I should. Regardless, um, the next episode will be about the end of her reign, the Nika revolts, and some other fun stuff. But thank you guys for listening. I can't tell you how much i appreciate you sticking with me and checking out my episodes again even though it's been a long time since i've recorded it i hope you all stay safe 
for the love of fucking God, please wear a mask when you go into places. Protect you and others. Hopefully in the future, next few, fuck me, in the next few episodes, hopefully I'll be able to get a guest on or a couple of guests. I want to get the podcast host from Whining About Her Story to join me. And uh, I just think that would be really cool. If you guys have any suggestions of other people I should reach out to, let me know. And don't forget to follow me on Facebook, on Twitter. Email me if you have questions. Historyu.pod at gmail.com. I have, yeah, I have a Facebook group. I'll, um, you know, you can send questions in there. Or you can ask me about my personal life or whatever. Uh, but yeah, reach out to me. Again, thanks so much. I look forward to doing the next episode, which will be the third and final installment in the Theodora Saga. Theodora Trilogy, I guess I could say. As always, history remembers. This has been Seth Michaels with History Uncensored. Goodbye. Be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now I am become death the destroyer of worlds I suppose we all thought that one way or another <laughs>